Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the Firetime Podcast. Well, we have come to the end of part one of this season where we talk to young up-and-coming leaders in the industry, and I am really excited to close out today with my friend Michael Vercruzzi from Associated Energy Systems up in Seattle. You know, we get into it in our conversation today, but it's just hilarious. Michael has a, a history of working in the tech space, particularly for Google, before coming into the hearth industry. He's only been in the hearth industry now for a couple of years. And it's really funny because I have a friend who works for Google in Denver, Colorado. He went to college with my wife. And every time we're in Colorado, we stay at their house and get together. And we were over there one time and he just told me, he said, Tim, there's this guy I work with at Google that's leaving to go to the fireplace industry. And so I gave him your number and I said that he's, he's got to connect with you. And it's so funny. It, it turns out to be Michael. And what I've appreciated about our time together is Michael has just a wealth of knowledge. I mean, and, and he's gone through some amazing experiences with, with startup companies that have exploded in growth and then, you know, working for a huge company like Google, he has a wealth of knowledge through both like academic training and through on the job experience. But it seems to me as if he's really come into the industry with a lot of humility, you know, watching and and observing and, and being very thoughtful and deliberate with what he does rather than, you know, just making rash changes. We, we kind of get into that in, in our conversation. So Throughout this, we, we talk about a lot of things. We, we talk about his approach to sales. We talk about technology. And, and by the end of it, we actually jump into carbon neutrality. And, and you know, I think our industry needs to pay a lot of attention to this because if we look at the tides of our culture and in our world, you know, the idea of being carbon neutral and, and dumping less CO2 into the atmosphere is at the forefront of everything and it's not going anywhere. And our industry needs to pay attention to this and figure out a way to be part of the solution or we risk being swept away. And so this conversation covers a lot of things and, and I'm excited for you guys just to hear from him and just get some perspective on his journey, his approach to the sales process, and and also where our industry needs to grow. So I definitely have some thoughts I'm going to share on the back end, but for now, I'll step out of the way so you can hear this conversation. Joining me from Kent, Washington, is the VP of Marketing and Sales at Associated Energy Systems. I'm here today with Michael Vercruzzi. Michael, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing good. I've been really excited for this conversation. It's been fun getting to know you in the industry, but I I feel like we have to talk about the way that our paths crossed because (laughs) to me, this is just so funny. So... My wife had a friend she went to college with that we've gotten to know real well in the years since then. And they live in Denver, Colorado, and we were out there visiting them. And one day he just told me, he works for Google. And he said, hey, Tim, there's this guy I work with and he's leaving Google to go into the fireplace industry. And so I gave him your number because you're the only person I know that's in this industry. I, I couldn't believe it. And, uh, and sure enough, it's, it's you, which is just incredible. It just shows how much of a small world it actually is. Uh, when I met Chase, uh, 
I was probably a week or two from uh, making my move out of Google to AES and it, we only met each other for a little while, but it, it was funny. He was bringing up this guy, Tim, that he knew because I was talking to him about uh, some of my family and telling him the background and fireplaces got brought up and Tim, your name got brought up. So yeah, it shows you a small world of both sides. Yeah, it was, it was really funny. And I guess maybe to start out, you know, Michael, I, you're one of those people that kind of from the first time I met you, I, I felt like, man, like this guy is bringing some really cool ideas to the table. And maybe I, I wanted to see if you could talk about your journey to get to AES because you've come through the startup world kind of in the tech space and then working for Google and, and then now jumping into fireplaces. Like what was that journey for you? It was an interesting journey for sure. Uh, one of the things that I think I've found over the last year, year and a half in heart has been nobody's got a street path here. I guess I should caveat that there's a couple of people who were born from day one and they knew they were going to join the family business and go sure. that direction. But most people that I've met have had a pretty eclectic path getting here. So I can raise my hand and say I'm one of those. Um, without making it too long of a story, um, I'd say there's a couple of things that brought me here. Um, so you brought up, I had a background in some of the tech and startup world. Uh, even before then, uh, I had started my path in accounting and marketing and kind of taken a, a roundabout path to get into tech. So I was already kind of comfortable with moving from potentially one path to another. Uh, and so that made it a little bit more open for me when I was looking to see what I wanted to do. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed the startup world that I had been in. It allowed me to, you know, be from some companies that went from you know, five to 10 to a hundred people. And then you juxtapose that with Google, which was an awesome big company. But I think my experience there, one of the things that it really highlighted for me was as much as Google does a lot of things right. I personally feel like I provide more value and I, you know, I, I push myself more. I feel more fulfilled in a smaller company. And so when I was looking to, to make my move from Google back into a smaller company, you know, I have some uh, family relationships with AES. And so that was yeah. something that we had, you know, kind of jokingly talked about for years, but talked a little bit more seriously about probably two or three years before, um, I joined Google. And then the opportunity popped up there and, um, you know, I kind of went a long way around that, but that switch that I had made earlier in my career from accounting and marketing to tech kind of made me comfortable going from tech now into hard. And that's one thing that I think that I do want to bring up, you know, this won't be as relevant for the established career people who listen to this, but for people who are potentially a little bit earlier on in their career, you know, I, I think we, we tend to just as people feel like we're kind of committed down one path. And, you know, that's not to say there's anything wrong with doing down one path. If you can build off that path, it probably gets you there even quicker. But I do want to point out, because I've talked to some people who are nearer to the industry, you're not committed to doing one thing for the rest of your life just as you started doing that. So I know there's some people who feel like they're potentially interested in sales and they don't want to get into sales because what if it's the wrong move? Say it with marketing, say it with it with whatever genre, uh, even within sure. ours. My my advice is to go test it out because worst case, you can always go switch back to another pad, but I guess I'm a approved case of that. So that was a, kind of a yeah. from your answer, Tim, but that's initially how I got into uh, to the hard world. 
That's really good. I think you're right. And it just goes back to what we kind of say a lot is like, you can't steer a parked car. And when, once you have that momentum, it's a lot easier to switch lanes as, as you learn more things. I guess one thing I'm curious about just moving from Google to the hearth industry, I mean, two different worlds and like technologically, I have to think Google is like on the forefront of everything yes. where the hearth industry is not. What, what was it like taking such a, a step back or, or maybe like slowing down the speed at which you're working with technology? What was that like? It, it's been interesting. I would say there's two answers to that. So the short one is yes. <laughs> it's obviously a, a little bit slower technology wise in the hardest world than it was on the Google side of the world. But that said, that was actually part of the appeal for me as well. So before Google and actually even at Google, a lot of what I did was consulting with larger companies. So going into companies and figuring out how are you doing things today? How could we improve it? And with Google, obviously with the lens of how could we use technology to improve it even better? That was a lot of fun, actually. I really do enjoy finding problems with figuring out ways to solve them. But one of the things that I didn't really get a chance at Google or at previous uh, companies was to participate and, you know, see the long-term effects of some of those solutions. Because as a consultant, you come in, you're there three, six, maybe nine months, and you figure out a problem, you solve it. Not that you don't have relationships there, but by definition, after you're done, you wave goodbye and you maybe never talk to those people again. Hopefully the solution works well, but really, unless it blows up, you never hear from them. And so with Hearth and with AES, not to say that AES has no technology. I, I think they're actually further than some in the industry even, but yeah, there was some obvious opportunities and things that I'm working on even now. Uh, to potentially bring some of the technology in to move things forward. And so for me, that was actually more of a positive. I, I knew there was some walls that I was going to run into getting some of those things implemented that I, I currently am still. But the excitement um, identifying some of those uh, potential issues and knowing some technology that I do know and potentially bringing that into an industry that hasn't gotten to see that yet you know, that's, that's exciting for me. Yeah. You know, as you were saying that what crossed my mind is for people, especially in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, AES is a, is a legacy company. I think it was back in the sixties, right? That AES started, I think. Yeah. Right around that. Was, was, yeah. And, and in the, in the Pacific Northwest, you guys have almost like familial type relationships with, with many of the retailers around and, and there's kind of a, I have to imagine like a, a pride in this is how we've built it. We've done it the right way. And I guess I'm wondering for you coming in from the outside, you're younger, you come from the tech space and you're coming into this kind of legacy company. How have you been able to navigate fitting in versus being seen as, as the outsider? It's a good question. Uh, and it's one that I probably answered differently now than I would have five or 10 years ago. Uh, okay, I probably burned myself, not terribly, but earlier in my career, again, going back to consulting, you know, you come in and you've got all the ideas and all the solutions, and then you go pitch the solutions and you wonder why the heck, why have these people not thought of this? Man, I must be a genius. They must be so dumb. And you realize 
probably 50, 60, 70% of the things that you're going to go pitch right at the beginning that you think are just being done wrong. There's probably a reason that they're being done that way. Uh, and that is applicable here at AES too, right? There's 50, 60, 70% of things that when I first came in, I might have asked myself, and for some of them, I could tell you, I asked myself, what yeah. the heck are we doing it this way? But the difference between five to 10 years ago and now, or maybe a couple of years ago when I started, was, you know, I learned to give it some time before I would come in and suggest, hey, here's all the different things we should change. And so really probably the first six months in particular, probably, probably even now actually, but specifically within that first six months, I really tried to the, you know, the extent of my ability to be patient and try to just understand this whole animal as a company before I really came in and suggested, hey, we should change some of these things. Now, I've done enough implementations where there was some obvious ones and I, I could say with pretty strong confidence from the beginning, hey, here's some things we should tweak. And, you know, people respected my experience there. But I, I do think winning some of the confidence of the team partially was just being comfortable coming in and say, hey, you know, I'm new to AES. Could you help, help me understand why we're doing something this way? And particularly for me, you know, I'm coming from tech to hearts where my heart experience is about a year and a half now. And when I started, it was about one day. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, a couple of weeks before I actually started to sit down with uh, Kirk Newby and Greg Newby and you know, get the 10,000 foot overview on heart. And I've been peripheral to the heart industry through Nicole, my wife, for about 10 years. So I, you know, I, I knew what a fireplace was. So maybe I was a day and a half ahead of somebody up the street, not very much. And so just being comfortable to say, Hey guys, you know, why do we do things this way? And, you know, a few things that I've seen before, but you know, you guys are a successful company. So what, what are the successful pieces here that I should be taking away before I even go try to tweak or change anything? Yeah, that's really good. You know, one, th- one thing I feel like too, especially with your role over the sales team, that that's a big ask. AES has a big sales team yes. and, and you, and you're, and you're in a lot of different markets. And, and I, you know, I think like the Pacific Northwest, there's, I think an inherited legacy that, that is a different dynamic than probably when you're in the Midwest or Texas or wherever else. Mm. H- have you ever been in a, in a position of like sales leadership before? Mm-hmm. I had, you have, I, I have, it's been, um, maybe a little bit different, uh, just in the sense that most of the products that I used to sell were digital. So there's not like a, a physical bottle or yeah. fireplace that you're going and selling. Um, but at Google, I was part of a sales team, um, more, more actually selling myself. But before Google, I was yeah. at a startup. Um, so the startup that I was at was a company called Moda. It's a smaller company that was doing um, AI consulting. But we initially started with about 20 people when I was there. I was the first customer facing person there. So first person to actually go sell the product to customers. But um, anyway, we grew from probably 20 people to a hundred people at the height when I was there. Uh, and a lot of that growth was on the, the customer facing and sales center of the world. So originally I was the first uh, salesperson or sales analyst that they had. And then we ended up growing a team where most of our projects were actually overseas. And so I got the chance to initially build our, our sales team over in uh, Washington, but eventually 
uh, Nicole, uh, my wife and I moved over to London for six months and we built that in. Oh, wow. So we had, uh, some salespeople, some data scientists, some developers that, uh, were rolling up to me. And so that, that's why I kind of gave a caveat. I have been in a sales leadership position, but it was about half sales, half technical. This is the sure. first where it's really big, full, purely sales because there's not developers as much in the hard world. Yep. Man, that, that's awesome. I guess I'm curious to know, what's your philosophy to being a sales leader or managing a sales team? Like, like how do you approach it? Uh, <laughs> that's another one that's probably changed if you would ask me five years ago versus now. Um, really, my philosophy is my job is to be at the front to knock down the boulders so that the team can win. You know, it, it's not, it's not my job to even necessarily be the best salesperson with the, in the company. It's my job to help find, build, train, coach the best salespeople that we can have. And, um, you know, a big part for me in this has been learning the heart set of the world. Cause I, I do think coaching and training is a huge element to that. And to me, to some degree, sales are sales. So some of the, the experiences that I've brought in from the tech side of the world are a hundred percent applicable here. But part of it too is knowing your product, knowing the competition and, uh, helping people overcome the obstacles and hurdles that their customers might ask. And in our case, you know, we're, we're B2B. So we have to know to do a good job. We have to know what are the hurdles and obstacles that our dealers might have, but then what are the hurdles and obstacles that their customers might actually ask the dealers? And so for yeah. me, it's trying to learn a little bit more about hearth so that we know, or so that I know it can help coach on how can we help our dealers, but then also taking it a level deeper and knowing a little bit more about that archetype and that persona who's actually going into those dealer shops so that I can help coach on that as well. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, when it, when it comes to sales, I, I it's so funny because I've never been a sales rep and I, I do a lot of work with uh, with retailers and, and I, I still consider myself a retailer, even though it's been a couple of years since I've, I've worked in a store. But I feel like sales reps often are trained in a way to regurgitate product information rather than be like a trusted advisor or even a, a consultant to the business. I know you, you've talked about that a lot. Like I feel like AES has, has really taken on like a consultative approach uh, with your sales team. And, and you mentioned like kind of like the hard closes is kind of going the way of the Buffalo. Can you, can you talk about like, wh- like where does a sales rep fit into today's world? Yeah. And it's, it's obviously going to depend on, on the company that you're in, right? Everybody structures things differently, but I, I agree with you and, and thank you for, bring that point up from uh, an AES side of the ring. We're absolutely trying to be more consultants than we are salespeople. Uh, and you'll, you'll notice that if you ever run into an AES outside salesperson, they're titled territory sales managers. We actually don't even title them salespeople. And you know, that's maybe it's a small thing, but I do think it actually makes a difference just in the philosophy that we're, we're trying to pitch when we, you know, recruit, hire, grow people. Our goal is that when you go into a heart shop or go into a barbecue shop or anybody that we're selling to, we're not trying to just sell you a thing, right? For, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you brought it up earlier. AES, especially up in the Pacific Northwest, has been around 40, 50 years. So we, we look at all of our territories kind of in that perspective. 
right? We want to have these relationships with customers for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and ideally even longer. And so with that lens, it doesn't do us really that much good if we sell a whole bunch of stuff to somebody at the cost of burning that relationship and then never wanting to do business with us again, right? A, it's hard to find new customers. B, this is not an industry where there's hundreds of new heart shops popping up every year. So uh, it doesn't just get to, to burn the relationships with the ones that exist. Um, mm-hmm. But the approach that we've tried to take then, instead of just being that uh, used car salesman, I'll, I'll say, is really trying to go in and understand what is it that our dealers are selling? You know, what is the marketplace that they're selling into? Um, what products do they already have on the floor? And is there, is there an opportunity that they aren't meeting right now just based on the product blend that they have? So it's, yeah. not, it's not even necessarily going in and suggesting, hey, you know, we sell Enviro, for example. You should go pull out all of your cozy. Although, if anybody wants to, feel free to give me a call. I can help it. <laughs> but, um, you know, cozy is a great product. And you're not dumb for bringing in cozy. And so I don't want to tell my salespeople, hey, go and talk to all the cozy dealers and tell them how dumb they are for bringing in cozy. No, A, I don't think that helps build a relationship anywhere. But B, it's just not true. So more... More accurate than what I'd like us to do is go identify, um, and it's not just cozy, right? We sell plenty of things. Yeah. We target plenty of other cus- our competitors as well. But maybe there's a particular niche that cozy doesn't fill, and maybe there's a particular product that we have in our arsenal that could help fill that gap. And in that case, let's go talk to the customer and identify why that might be a gap, and let's go see: Do we have other customers within our network? And that is one advantage we have, right? We sell in a lot of territories like you brought up. So we can find generally quite a few examples of, hey, here's a dealer that kind of fits your profile, right? They sell generally into the same population of market, generally same type of uh, affluency. They carry the same types of products. And here's something that we sell to them that worked out really well. Mm-hmm. You know, And one of the things I'm trying to do is also build up a little bit, but more of a, you know, a referral network even too. Not not necessarily sure. like, hey, go sell our product, but referral in the sense of, hey, this customer has done really well with this. They they look like you. They have roughly the same number of installers and trucks. And here's a product that we're selling to them that's done really well. You know, I can tell you why I think it's done really well, but obviously I'm biased because I sell the product. So why don't you talk to that customer as well? You know, I've yeah. picked some of those relationships up too. So again, I got long-winded there, but you have asked the question of, you know, consultative salespeople. You know, I, I think that's really what I'm trying to lead the team to. And I, I really do think that's where a lot of sales is going. Understanding a little bit more than just your product, but understand your customer first. Yeah, that's really good. One thing that I'd, I'd like to know with your experience that you've had, and, and now that you've had some time in the hearth industry specifically is, I'm going to ask you two questions. But first, what do you think is the best thing you've seen the hearth industry do in general compared to like what Google or the tech world has done in their approach to the market or an approach to customers? <laughs> I think they can share more, honestly. Um, I have I've taken a tour of most of the territory that AES covers, and I've ridden with all of our salespeople at this point. Uh, and I will say 
not even nine out of 10, it's probably 99 out of 100 stores that I've been into. You can just tell that there is genuine passion for what people do. Like people, they are, they're passionate and they really care about, you know, the store that they run. A lot of these are, are family run stores or family run businesses. A lot of these are second and third generation. And there's, you know, some passionate pride in doing that. And, and you can see that come across to customers. And that's not to say that when I was at Google or when I was in tech that, you know, people didn't care, but there was just a different level of engagement when you're working for this giant company versus, you know, you're working for this two or three person retail shop and those two or three people are it, your, your family or friends that are close enough to be your family. And you can yeah. just see that come across when those stores work with customers. So I would just say it's probably the, the passion that I've seen. It's probably been the, yeah. the biggest uh, winner versus tech. Okay, here's, here, here's the, the other end of that question. What is the biggest thing that the tech world understands and executes <laughs> with business that the hearth industry does not have any comprehension of? I would say the biggest difference is just their ability to move quickly to change, right? Um, when I think of tech, I think of a lot of different companies that were you know, at the top of that, even 10 or 15 years ago, that don't even exist anymore or, or exist to a very different extent. Um, the, the best thing that tech does that's different is, you know, they built with the business model that if they can find what changes are going to happen and be ahead of those changes, they'll win. <clears throat> there were entire teams at Google who were dedicated to projects that most likely were not even going to make Google money. In fact, they were probably going to lose Google money because it was just looked at as R&D. Uh, but really, they were looking to see what were things going to look like 5, 10, 15 years down the line and be ahead of the people who weren't looking down the line in that same way. And so, you know, in a course, what I go look at is things like electric, things like, uh, you know, carbon neutrality. You know, that's, it's a hot button topic. And obviously we sell a lot of gas products. So I'm not trying to tell anybody you're wrong for selling gas products. If we cut those out of the AES, we'd be a much smaller company overnight. But I do think we have to be cognizant of where our force is taking things and what forces are ones that we think we can overcome. Because I don't want us to just capitulate to everything because I don't think that's a winning recipe either. But there are some tides that you have to look at and you have to ask yourself, is this a tide that I can surf over? Or is this a tide that I'm going to have to go ride with that wave and go in whatever direction that wave's going to curl? Because there's some waves that you can't swim over. You have to go with them. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. I, I I think that I think that the the tide and just the evaluation of can I surf over this wave and exert my will on it, or do I need to ride this wave and realize I might have some autonomy on where the wave's going to go, but not very much. I think that that's a really good analogy. And I guess that, that kind of takes me as, as you talked about this, it takes me to the article you you wrote recently for the Firetime magazine, where you had that Wayne Gretzky quote about how Wayne Gretzky said he was such a good hockey player because everybody else skated to where the puck was and he was skating to where the puck was going. And I, I agree. Like 
I think our industry in general has not been looking at where the puck is going. Like I just straight up, I don't think we have like if you, and like if you, you bring up like carbon neutrality and net zero and electric and especially in the United States, like the puck is moving and we got to figure out a way to skate there. And that doesn't mean capitulating to everything, but it does mean taking a hard look at, at what we offer and figuring out like, how do we get there? And I, I don't, I don't think that we are putting the emphasis on that the way we should. I agree with you. And I think the scary part of it too, is there's not necessarily a obvious answer of what to do, right? If you ask me, and if I knew this for a fact, I'd be much richer. So take a (laughs) grain of salt. But if you ask me, there is a wave of, I don't know if you want to call it electrification or just going green. Um, But I think there's a wave there that is insurmountable to swim over. Right. Agreed. I, I go look at the data. Um, actually, I'll bring up a point that I think I've already told you. But if you go look at what people are searching for when they go search for fireplace, there's some tools you can look online to go do these types of things. You know, people are searching for electric fireplace 50% more than they're just looking for the word fireplace. So when somebody goes into Google, Bing, whatever search engine they're looking for, they're searching for electric fireplace first, which honestly, that's shocking to me. You know, generally you would see you know, the top level word and then some searches underneath there once they were steered in a direction, but they're starting at electric fireplace. They're looking for electric fireplace three times more than they're looking for a gas fireplace. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that more electric fireplaces are being sold than gas, but it does mean that consumer behavior is starting to shift. Um, yeah. I'm part of a very large family, some of the second of eight kids. So I, now I, can kind of see some of that, you know, go green mentality, even in some of my younger siblings. Um, and there's a giant rabbit hole down there on why that, <laughs> why that might be happening. But regardless of why it's happening, I think the important thing for people listening is to, you know, separate why something is happening and what they can do with that thing happening. And in this case, you know, yeah, there's a very political conversation on why things are happening, but I, I think the reality is it is happening and you can pretend that it's not, you can say, yep. you know, here's the 50 reasons why that's wrong that it is, but it is. And so what are you going to do to actually help your business if that's the reality? And I think there are some things we can do, but uh, we first have to accept that this is the way things are going before you can figure out solutions to it. Yeah, I agree. We'll get back to our conversation with Michael Vercruzzi in just one minute. Hey, if you've been listening to the podcast this season and hearing from these young up-and-coming leaders, chances are the questions are starting to mount, right? You've heard from all these people about what they're doing to grow themselves and to serve their customers and their business at large, and it's hard to know sometimes where to start. Well, this season for the final episode I am going to be sitting down with the legendary Tim Rethlake to answer all the questions that you guys send in. And so if, if you have questions that you've been thinking about, how does this apply in my company? What do I do in this situation? You need to send me an email. My email address is tim at 
itsfiretime.com. That's Tim at itsfiretime.com. And TR and TR will be live for the last episode of this season to answer your questions. Don't miss this. This is going to be special. Tim Rethlick is retiring in the very near future. And I'm really excited to send him off and to have him be a part of this episode. So make sure to send in your questions. The data is, it's pretty overwhelming that as a society, like we are dumping loads of carbon into the atmosphere at a level that's completely unprecedented in human history. Right. And that, that's not debatable. Like we're, we're doing that. And, and like you're saying, like whether you think that's a big deal or not, it's happening. And all the scientific data shows that there are going to be very massive consequences based on that. And that's the, that's the reality that we're living in. And so if we realize that, that that's what the data says, and th- and on top of that, there's a cultural emotional narrative that is, you know, ramping up to be like a tidal wave with that. And it's really not anything that's going to go away. And, and truly, I, I like whether you lean left or right, like this issue is not going away. I, it's only going to continue to increase. And when we realize that we have an industry that sells products that produce carbon, like in the nation's eyes, this is, this is speaking about the United States, like our industry is lumped in with people that mine and burn coal. Mm. Like we are, and we just have to realize that. And we should try to find a way to separate ourselves from that and show that like, we're actually part of the solution. And I feel like your idea that you, you wrote about with like carbon neutrality is really important because I think you mentioned in your article, like what was it like one hour of Google puts off more carbon than like <laughs> most hearth businesses for a year. Like it's it something crazy like that. Right. Yeah. I was like, if every single person who listens to this article, you know, tallies up how much carbon they'll produce in their entire life. I'm sure within a month, just the office that, you know, I was supporting for Google probably produce more carbon than that. So yeah, and that's the funny part, right? Nobody looks at Google as this giant carbon producer, and I think that's probably where you're going. You know, what are ways that's ex- yeah? I, I, on that that's side? exactly that's exactly where I want to go with this. Yeah, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, so you go look at. I have not looked at all hundred, so somebody can go check this and tell me where I'm wrong. But I bet you, if you looked at the Fortune hundred companies, all of them, if not all of them, maybe five of them, uh, don't have in their financial statements like what are they doing to go be green or go be carbon neutral or or in fact i think a lot of them now are trying to pitch being carbon negative you know you have to ask yourself why are they doing that one of the the areas that i worked in a lot uh, back with that lot of company was actually in the oil and gas industry and so we were working with companies like chevron like shell um and those companies you would think actually would have every reason right to try to you know push against that even but some of those were the companies that were actually at the forefront of trying to be carbon negative carbon neutral at least uh, and part of it's just because they realized that is where the wave is going they realize that is where the narrative and the customer base is going and so they're trying to position themselves in a way that's favorable there right if they thought that there was no economic reason for them to make them change they wouldn't make them change right it's that business at the end of the day, they're not going to spend money if they don't think that there's a return there. 
And so clearly, if you go look at, you know, biggest companies we have in the US, they're all putting chips on the table that say, this is where the direction is going. And so I think your question originally was, you know, what have they done to try to position themselves better on that uh, side of uh, just public perception? Um, for oil and gas specifically, if you go look at it, you know, there's a couple of companies in the, the Middle East that aren't doing this, but pretty much every other company in the world that sells oil and gas is rebranding as an energy company. Like if you go look, uh, I haven't looked at it, I should have before this, but I know a couple of years ago, if you looked at Shell or Chevron, they don't call themselves Shell oil and gas. They call themselves Shell Energy Company. And they're looking to see, you know, how do they diversify their portfolio? And obviously a giant piece of that portfolio is still going to be oil and gas, you know, these dirty technologies. But you can still do some of those things as long as you're showing, you know, here's the direction that we're also still trying to go. Here's some investments we're still trying to make. And uh, on the oil and gas side specifically, those obviously produce CO2. Uh, there's projects that you can invest into to basically eliminate CO2 from the environment. Uh, and that's what a lot of these companies have done, right? They've gone and they've invested money into you know, growing rainforests, uh, building technologies to capture CO2 where it might be produced at uh, like a, a fiery site. Uh, and they can go out and show, hey, yes, we produced 100 units of CO2, but here's 101 units of CO2 that we actually removed from the environment. And so if you look at the net of it, we're actually a positive thing for the world. Uh, and yeah. I think there's a lot of application here at Hearth too, right? There's, uh, there's things we could do to go that direction. Man, I, I agree. And I know that you, you talked and, and you've talked with Grant as well about like, why doesn't our industry have a carbon offset program? You know, like, it, it would make so much sense to do that. And I know that you're, you're kind of working on a, a pilot program to spearhead that, but I just have to think like, you know, I've testified at these, at these hearings a number of times and like our industry gets crucified as, you know, we hate the environment. We are destroying our planet. We are actively fighting for these archaic systems that just make wealthy people wealthier and all this stuff. And I think that for us to be able to come on and say like, no, like we don't want carbon in the atmosphere either. And our industry is actually carbon neutral because of this. Like to me, that takes so much of the oxygen out of the room so that there's, there's less fuel to start a fire, if that makes sense. And it just seems crazy to me that, that we have not done that. Like if, you know, I mean, just go back to Google, like, like you said, this is, I mean, you know, anecdotally like google in you know one hour is probably producing more carbon than you know our entire industry in you know six months or something like that but they realized yeah like so we have a carbon offset program so that that way we're making less of an impact environmentally that just seems like business 101 i mean it, it actually is stewardship 101 but <laughs> it also seems like business 101 right no exactly and i think you know again i'll play by uh, Someone into the industry card. So they don't necessarily know what has or hasn't been done you know, beyond about a year and a half. So I, I don't want to discredit any efforts that have been made trying to go into this direction. Uh, but I do think that there is more that we can do. Um, part of it too is just creating, you know, a, a, an ecosystem and an understanding of where 
where does that fall? Like, where does responsibility fall between manufacturers versus distributors versus dealers? Yeah. Right. Because there's things we could all be doing, but it also doesn't help if we're all running in three different directions trying to solve the same problem. Exactly. And I think that's, that's, that's what's been so hard for our industry is that we don't have that unity to all come together and say, let's make a cohesive effort at this. Instead, it's, you know, every, every company kind of doing their own thing. And, and I know like with, with you guys too, have you guys officially partnered with Stove Team International as well? We have, yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, we, we started, uh, back in March, I want to say this year. Yeah. I, I'd love to get these guys on the podcast at some point, but I mean, the short version, if I'm, if I'm correcting it, right? Like there's millions of people across the world that have horrific air quality in their homes because they cook over open fires and the smoke doesn't have good ventilation. And on top of that, that produces more, you know, carbon into the atmosphere and things. So they have cost-effective stoves that clean up the air quality, that lower carbon footprint and that create jobs for people, many of whom are, are impoverished. And I mean, that's essentially what it is, right? Yeah, exactly. That's that's a perfect 10,000 foot summary. Yeah. And, and it's like for like a very small amount of money, we can contribute towards that. And to me, it's like, wait, why? Like, I know that like the HPBA has a, has a, they're like one of the, the sponsor charity programs for them. But I'm like, w- like, why are companies like this not like the poster child for our, our industry? That's a good point. And honestly, I hadn't even thought of that either, but there's an obvious CO2 impact there too, right? If you can go and help um, a third world country where they, they have to cook, right? That's something we all have to do. We have to eat. Uh, if you can improve the quality of the life of the people that have to use that stove and also help offset CO2, then maybe there's a direction that the industry could go as well. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, it's a bigger conversation than just this, but I, I think that your point about technology companies being able to look at where the puck is going. And it's not even that they have a crystal ball, but when you see the momentum of the puck, it's pretty easy to go, well, I can't tell you what's going to happen in 10 years, but I can tell you next year, like this is probably going to happen and we should be, we should be doing the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So to round out, Michael, we, we went a lot of different directions in that conversation and, oh man, I wanted to hit marketing, but I, I, I think, I think to end it, I, I want to circle back to sales because, you know, you've, you've had experience outside the industry. You're, you're now leading the sales team for AES and your perspective from the distributor level is, is different than a lot of my guests who are, who are often talking from the manufacturer or the, the retailer perspective. But I want you to finish this sentence for me. Sales is a game of. Sales is a game of partnership. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's that's not as creative as I want to be, but I can't think of what I wanted to do. <laughs> well, can you elaborate on that. Why partnership come to mind? Partnership, because from a, a distributor perspective, like you were saying, I don't think that we can sell long term if we don't have strong partnership with our dealers. And so, I guess an example of that would be during all of this. COVID uh, chaos, you know, there were times where we might get information from manufacturers that dealers might not know. And, you know, we're sitting in a middle spot where maybe it'd be advantageous for us to not share some of that information. Like, hey, maybe we can know that uh, a certain type of valve isn't going to be available. And so we know that uh, those units will probably become more valuable. 
know, technically it'd be better off for us to sit and wait three months until those become rare and sell them for more. But I don't, that type of, uh, that type of perspective, that like, uh, individualistic perspective rather than partnership perspective wins in the long term. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we, we try to figure out ways where we can truly understand what's best for our customers. Think, think of what's best for ourselves too, but spy where that middle ground is. Cause there's probably some opportunities that we could win more in the short term if we, uh, we took one route, but if it burns that partnership, it, it really isn't going to help us five, 10 years down the line. And I guess that's where we were talking in this whole conversation is, you know, what's five, 10 years down the line. Uh, well, we've got to be true to our word there too. Yeah. That's really good. Michael, you gave us a ton of value and uh, it's just cool to see what you're doing, man. I, I know that uh, you're someone the industry is going to be paying attention to in the years to come. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate you guys taking the time for uh, working with me. I know you and Grant have spent a lot of time giving me some industry 101 and, you know, fire time network and magazine has been a great resource for me in trying to get familiar with the industry. So thank you for that. Awesome, man. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Michael Vercruzzi. I love it every time I get a chance to talk to him. And and I really meant what I said that that from my first impression with him, I, I just felt like this is someone who is going to be a, a, a force to be reckoned with in the industry. And it's interesting because I don't think he does that through brute force and through, you know, just like exerting his will. I, I, I think that Michael has a, has a subtlety and a thoughtfulness uh, about him that is is really really cool and and actually Grant thought the same thing I remember early on he went out to Spokane to have have dinner with with Grant and, and some people from his company and Grant called me afterwards and was like man I really like Michael and 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 think that he's gonna be exactly what what AES needs and so it's been really cool to see that develop you know as we talked there's a few things I want to hit here as 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 we as we move out I, I think that number one the idea of our industry caring more than other companies is so true. You know, when, when I asked Michael about the, the, the best thing that our industry understands that other companies don't like that, that was a no hesitation answer. And, and that's true. Like at the end of the day, we have heart and, and we really do care about our communities. We really do care about our customers. And it's not that, that every big company doesn't, but Man, I, I think that there is something special about, about the small business in the community that's serving it. And, and I think that the challenge with that is, is that very often, even though we, we do care you know, more than many other people and, and, and we, you know, we, we lose sleep over thinking about our customers and, and their well-being, one of the things that, that's interesting with that is I think it's easy as a hearth retailer to care so much on the front end and then once a job gets installed... It's like we, we lock our doors, shut our windows, and we, we never talk to that customer again. And, and it's funny that like we care, 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 and then move on to the next one. But I think an area of, of growth that I, I've started to see some companies make is in really letting that care showcase all the way through to follow up on how's the product doing? Is there anything else we can help you with? And, and even thinking about like, you know, you, you bought a fireplace from us in the winter. Like, could we help you with a barbecue in the spring? I, I, I think that that there is something incredible about the way we care. But I think that for many companies, it stops as soon as the sales made. And, and we should actually, we should leverage into that. Like we, we should actually push deeper into showing the customer that we care after the sale and, and beyond. I thought that that was a, a, a really wise point he brought up and it made me think about that. 
on the flip side, you know, when Michael talked about how one thing that, that the tech companies understand that our industry would be wise to think about is moving quickly to change. And like we said in the conversation, you don't have to have a crystal ball, but you know, when, when the puck is moving, well, you can kind of see where it's going to go in the short term, at least. And it, it, it is, it is very interesting that, uh, tech companies know that like they, they live and breathe it. They have to, because things are, are moving and changing so fast. And there's a stability with our industry that, that, you know, many tech companies don't have, like, you know, many tech companies come and go, you know, day by day, it seems like, but despite the stability that we have had, we are in a period of disruption. And I I think that the temptation in our industry is to look at things with a scarcity mindset. And the second that an obstacle or a regulation or an issue comes up, we immediately push back and we immediately think this is a threat to me. This is a threat to, to, you know, my way of life, whatever it is. And we immediately push against it rather than, than stepping back and, and, and thinking, well, okay, is, what is it? What is this saying? Is, is there validity to this? Is it, is this telling me something about where the market is going and where society is going, where I actually need to be able to adapt rather than just resist? And that's not saying that you should be a doormat. And it's not saying that you should condescend without any qualms to, to, to anything that starts to, to push against your business. But I, I think our business needs a, a really healthy dose of adaptation to where things are going. And there's so many ways that you can apply this. Obviously, me and Michael hit it pretty hard in like the, the carbon neutrality conversation and, and and being conscious of what's going on with our climate. But it applies to a lot of things, right? I mean, when when you look at like the way that sales are done in our industry, you know, it, it's very archaic. And like, we should be making steps to meet the consumer where they're at. Like whether that's, you know, creating online appointments to, to meet with our customers or, or Zoom calls or, or finding a way to bridge the e-commerce gap to help retailers. Like this is totally possible. But for many companies, we've kind of stuck our, our head in the sand and we've, we've just resisted. So I, I think that, that there is a lot of wisdom there. And, and actually, I don't think I mentioned this in the podcast before. Maybe I did. But, but a while ago, I, I, I got asked by Jerry Eisenhower about what trends I pay attention to. And for me, what, what's what's interesting is I don't I don't pay a lot of attention to to product trends in the sense of wondering is clean face going to be big this year or is this color going to be big, but but the trends that I I look at are, are more societal. You know, how is it that we buy things? How do we feel in general about local businesses versus faceless companies? What is it about the consumer experience where companies have been forced to make it easier you know so so like those are kind of trends that i i try to pay a lot of attention to because i i think that that's a, a leading indicator of of where things are going and our industry has been protected for a long time because we sell a complicated product that could burn down your house right and it's great that we sell complicated products it's the reason why we're not a commodity and it's a reason that we haven't been completely disrupted yet but we cannot take that for granted and and, and we have to step up and be able to to change and adapt and 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 rethink what it is that we do i, th- I think it was steve jobs that talked about you know 
you better be trying to put yourself out of business because if, if you're not, somebody else will. And if, and if you're trying to put yourself out of business, well, you can probably find a new business to get into. And and that was just his way of, of, of saying, you always got to keep your eyes open because things are always gunning for you. So like, what if what if you were the one to innovate and and, and make yourself obsolete because there's there's something even greater that, that you've discovered? And I, I think that there's a lot of wisdom there. To round it out, Michael talked about how sales is a game of partnership at the end of the day. And, and for me, like, you know, when I was in retail, like I, I was an AES customer for 15 years and, and their company really has exemplified that, that I, I was actually talking with a, with a friend of mine that is a retailer in the Pacific Northwest. It, it wasn't Grant, it was somebody else, but he was really frustrated at, at some of the dynamics of, of what had happened over the last couple of years and the lack of transparency and communication. And, and he literally said like, I feel like AES is the only partner I have. And and I, I think that that idea of, of, at the end of the day, looking at your sales opportunities as a partnership is so wise. You know, this customer coming in, like, why am I going to push for the upsell if it's not something I'd recommend to my partner for their best interest, right? You know, why why would I try to make that extra 5% margin because I know they'll pay it when the next customer, eh, they, they may not pay it, so I'll, I'll, I'll give them a different price than this customer, right? Very often with, with sales, there's this mentality of trying to play games with, with the process. And and I, I've, I've seen a lot of situations where, where people say, well, you know, how much can you get for this fireplace? Like, well, you sold it to this customer for this much. How much could you get if you're in the nice neighborhood? And I, I, I don't know if that shows a partnership, right? I, I, I don't know if that does. I, I, I think that, that that pits us against our customer. And that's not to say that you shouldn't make a healthy margin and be proud of the prices that you sell. Um, and, and, it, and it doesn't mean that you don't, you don't charge like for you know, certain feature packages that, that are, are more expensive and, and have more bells and whistles that a neighborhood that's not quite as well-to-do wouldn't be able to afford. But it, it is saying that there should be some consistency in why you do what you do and that anything you offer your customers, you can look at them as a partner and say, this is what I'm recommending and this is what it's going to cost. And I, I think that that's a, that's a really good reminder for us that sales is a game of partnership. So I got a ton of value out of that conversation and I hope that you guys did too. Now, if this podcast has been a blessing for you and you want to support it financially, you can do that by going to the website patreon.com slash it's fire time. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash it's fire time. And as we're going to keep going this season, you know, you heard that this was this was the last of our young up and coming leaders section. We're actually going to shift and move into the next phase of a career, which is what I'm calling being a peak performer. And we'll explain it next week. Being a peak performer does not mean that everything is perfect. It doesn't mean that there's not problems in your business and what you do, but it does mean that you're running at full stride, right? There's some experience under your belt. You've really learned some things that work and you've opened up your stride and are starting to run at full speed. And I'm really, really excited for you guys to hear these conversations. So with that said, I'm going to jump out of the way. Hope you have an amazing week and we'll talk again very soon. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by InBloom out of Portland, Oregon. 
We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. I'm all in to burn.